1990, 26-year-old Terry Schiavo fell into a persistent vegetative state after suffering cardiac arrest. A fierce, highly public battle took place between her parents and her husband, who wanted to disconnect her feeding tube. Terry's husband argued that his wife would not have wanted her life artificially prolonged with no hope of recovery. Terry Schiavo's case spurred an emotional, nationwide, and international heated debate over quality of life, right to die, and end-of-life issues. The case grew so notorious that the Vatican in Rome challenged American law, which allowed for discontinuing food and water in certain circumstances, arguing for the sanctity of human life. Though the court sided with her husband, Michael Schiavo, the state legislature passed a bill known as Terry's Law, giving Florida Governor Jeb Bush authority to prevent the removal of the feeding tube. After much back and forth involving state and federal courts, Terry's feeding tube was eventually removed, ending the long legal struggle over her fate when she died on March 31st, 2005, at the age of 41. So, should a person's death be prolonged? Or should a person's life be allowed to end through mercy killings or euthanasia? What about a person who's seeking to euthanize themselves with the aid of a physician? Is allowing such practices of so-called physician-assistant suicide merciful or merciless? What does the Bible and the Christian faith have to say about these issues? How can we understand the topic of suicide, euthanasia, and the sanctity of human life as Christians? Welcome, everybody, to the Beards and Bible podcast. My name is Josh. I'm joined on this lovely evening, even though you may be listening to this another time, by the great Gabe Rutledge. Gabe, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Yeah, we have switched up the recording times, and I'm in favor of that. It's not 5 or 10 in the morning. Yeah. I don't have to go yeah. feed my six-year-old breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Which is code for something else. We both and know. <laughs> my brain is at full capacity of operation. But I, I, about an hour from now, my brain's going to start shutting itself down because I'm nearing my bedtime. Yeah, but yeah. yeah me too. I, this, I like is this. This, this is the golden hour. Hmm? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I'm actually, I told this to Gabe, and I'll confess this. I right now have the all-star game on the Major League Baseball All-Star Game on mm. on the screen behind me. So I'm multitasking. I've got Gabe on this screen. I've got our show notes on this screen. And mm. I have the Major League Baseball All-Star Game on this screen. And, uh, yeah, so if I get distracted and I'm, and I'm just sort of zoning out and staring at this screen, then mm-hmm. just snap your fingers and I'll snap back into it. So Yeah, I'm glad you clarified. I was going to ask, what is this sport? <laughs> What is the sport that you are watching? What is the all-star game? <sighs> I was going to guess wow, baseball based on the yeah. fact that you have the Atlanta. It's either Atlanta Braves or it's Alabama hat. I don't know which. I can't tell them apart. How dare you? Yeah. How dare you? You Man, we've been friends a long time, but that's about, that's, that's, uh, wow. Wow, that thing. hurts. The Atlanta Braves versus Alabama logo is sinfully similar like the atlanta braves see, atlanta braves has so a little if you're watching on top, youtube you can see yeah it has the my hat yeah and that's an atlanta braves hat right 
This is an Atlanta Braves hat I'm wearing. Of course, I'm I'm a Georgia fan. I'm not going to be caught dead. Okay. In a yeah. Speaking of Atlanta Braves, Ronald Acuna Jr. is up to bat right now. If you're a Braves fan, he made the All Star team this year. So hmm. they're doing good. They've got one of the best records in baseball right now. So yeah. Hmm. But yeah, then again, the, the Alabama logo has a little <laughs> has a little frilly thing at the top of the A. Yes. That's yes, the that's difference. the difference. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Gabe, have you ever been to a Major League Baseball game? No, I haven't. I haven't. Mm. I, don't, I don't know what I'm missing. And I'm okay with it. You're that. missing Americana. You're missing mm. a slice of American pie, my friend. Mm. Just beautiful red, white, and blue where the eagle flies. It just doesn't move <laughs> fast enough for me. Like, it doesn't... I need a... I need a sport that moves fast, like volleyball, ping pong. Um, a ping? Wait, what's else? You can't take your kid to a ping pong match and, hey, sport, let's get a hot dog at the ping pong match. I need something where there's a lot of scoring in a short amount of time, and then we just move on with our lives, like something fast-paced. Like I think that. that's called basketball. Yeah, basketball. I, I enjoy watching basketball. Do you? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe one of these days we can catch a basketball game together. Maybe. Although I, I highly doubt you would be committed to that. But <clears throat> I, I would go. Anyway. If, if you wanted me to join you, I would go with you to a basketball game. <laughs> uh, well, how's your life been the past, past few weeks? Good. I'm Just getting ready. Uh, yeah, we're going. Stacy and Noah, my oldest son, and I are going on a very long-awaited trip to Israel here in three weeks. Oh, leaving. wow. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. We're looking forward to that. Getting geared up, getting a uh, passport, all that stuff arranged, and looking at rental cars when we get there. So I'm gonna rent a car. I'm gonna drive around Israel. Can you picture that? Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you know Jesus drove a Honda? I don't know Did where this know is that? going. This is because he know. he said, "I am I am the Father came in one accord." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I will think of that as I'm driving my. You should Toyota. You should tell that. You should tell that to your teenage son and see if he laughs. Mm. As we're walking yep. down the Via Della Rosa, <laughs> it's a somber, sacred moment, and you break the ice with a terrible mm. dad joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've been to Israel before. Has Stacy ever mm-hmm. been to Israel? No, she hasn't. Yeah, we we uh, never been to Israel together. Um, Noah has never been, and he's never even flown in an aircraft so this will be kind wow. of a cool experience for him yeah that's awesome man ronald mm. acuna just struck out so mm. you know you don't know who that is and i no don't even know what a strikeout is so mm. <laughs> too bad well i'm kind of jealous i'm not kind of jealous i'm a lot bit jealous that's awesome yeah come with us you should go yeah i'll just drop everything and come to israel yeah. i'm sure i can manage that I'm, yeah, I'm sure Jenny would not mind being the sole parent <laughs> for 10 days in a row whatsoever. Yeah. yeah, she can handle it. Yeah. Don't even tell her. No, like, just did... tell her the day before. Yeah. I tell her I'm going to like uh, Atlanta or something. And then mm-hmm. what I don't tell her is I'm going to Atlanta to jump on a plane to mm-hmm. Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Mm. No, that's terrible. One of these days I'm going to go to Israel and I really, really want to go like you guys are going. I don't want to go... Are you going as part of a massive tour group, or are you guys kind of doing a solo? Just us three. See, that's, the, that's exactly what I'd love to do. I wouldn't want to go with a giant, big, 
tour group and be a part of the bus stuff. And yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure every like holy site there is probably inundated with tourists. Yeah, it just depends on the time of year you go. In the summer, like when we're going to be going in August, it's going to be relatively empty because it's so daggone hot. <laughs> no one wants to go really? to Israel. Oh, yeah. Well. yeah. That's not mm. good. But yeah, being yeah. in a big tour group sounds really lame. I've never done it before, but, you know, waiting 30 minutes in a bus so all the, you know, older people can use the bathrooms while you wait to go to the next stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really enjoyable. That's how I want to spend my time. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. A good way to spend your summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Freddie Freeman's up to bat. If you're a Brace mm-hmm. fan, you know who that is. Freddie Freeman, a.k.a. Judas Iscariot. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a joke because he used to play for the Braves and he plays for the Dodgers, but you don't know who the Braves or the Dodgers are. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Nope. nope. Gabe, when you and I were in college, we started our college career in 2003. We both took, because we had to, classes on Christian ethics. Because we went to a Christian college where, by default, we got a Bible minor. And in 2005 and in 2004, the Terry Schiavo case was happening right down the road from us in Clearwater, Florida. We were in Lakeland, Florida. What do you remember about the Terry Schiavo case? And what what do you think about it now? Or do you remember yeah. the Terry Schiavo case? I, I vaguely remember the Terry Schiavo case. I was very uninterested okay. in the news at the time and uninterested yeah. in ethics at the time. But yeah, I think uh, I remember it being she was she was in a vegetative state or maybe almost vegetative state. Uh, I think she yeah. was like partially yeah, was. conscious or not conscious at all. Tell me, was that the case? Well, she was basically on a feeding tube Hmm. and her husband wanted to disconnect her feeding tube. She had been in a vegetative state since 1990. Wow. So we're talking for like 14, 15 years and her parents wanted to keep her alive by keeping the feeding tube in. Her husband basically argued that his wife wouldn't want her life artificially prolonged and she would never have any hope of recovery. And so, man, it went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it grew so big that like the Vatican was like weighing in on, um, the ethics and it became like a sanctity of life issue. Um, yeah. And so the big hot debate was, should a person's death be prolonged? Because a lot of people are saying Terry Schiavo would have died in 1990 when she had cardiac arrest that put her in a vegetative state. But she was connected to a feeding tube, and for 15 years she'd been kept alive artificially. Um, but others were saying, no, taking out the feeding tube, that's just that's just euthanasia. You're just committing murder mm-hmm. as a way to... <clears throat> Not necessarily put her out of her misery because she's not, we don't know if she's in pain because she's in a vegetative state, but you're killing her because she's a drain on the system, keeping her alive in a vegetative state. Mm-hmm. And so I can remember some very, 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 very lively and heated debates in our Christian ethics class. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it happened, you know, the feeding tube got taken out in March of 2005 and um, she passed. 
And so, uh, yeah, man, it was a very... I don't, I don't think I'd really consider the topic of euthanasia, right to die, artificially prolonging someone's life ever before until that case. And then after, you know, just kind of seeing that flesh itself out as a young guy when I'm developing my own ideas and thinking through it, it really, I don't know, kind of the first time the wheels started turning for me towards all these things. Yeah, it's, it's hard because, I mean, for the first time in human history, we've had technology to keep people who are in a vegetative state alive indefinitely, you know? It's, yeah. This question is kind of a modern question. Um, <clears throat> we, sure. have, we have modern illnesses that I think are probably caused by environmental um, situations. Then we have mm. technology to be able to keep people alive. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a modern question. Um, but it, it it's interesting kind of it, it opens up and it almost exposes the heart of man in a whole new way uh, we didn't think was possible um hmm. yeah that's that's a really really tough decision i think we're going to kind of dive into with this yeah with this episode yeah part of the reason why the terry shavo case <clears throat> i think was so um controversial is only a few years before that there was a doctor by the name of Jack Kevorkian he was known as Dr. Death or the media called him also Jack the Dripper Hmm. and uh, he was a physician who publicly championed someone who was terminally ill their right to die by physician assisted suicide and his quote was dying is not a crime and he was very unashamed about his role in assisting 130 patients um to end their lives Mm. and i sent you a video earlier of him doing a 60 minutes interview you got a chance to watch it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah what'd you think it was intense very intense um basically a guy named tom thomas is dying of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease and is in the late stages of it. And, uh, yeah, Jack Kevorkian asks him multiple times in the video. Basically he's filming this video as kind of a, uh, chronicling this man's decision-making process. And then finally the man is so, so fed up with living with this disease that he consents to allowing Jack Kevorkian, uh, to, to, um, give him a lethal injection and, and kill him first. He, he puts him to sleep and he gives him a lethal injection. But you see, um, you know, Jack Kevorkian is saying, are you sure you don't want to wait a week? Are you sure you don't want to wait a month and think about it longer? And, and so, he, you know, the guy's like, no, no, I, I, I want it now, you know, and he's, he's tired of living with this and he's been in constant pain and having a hard time breathing. And Yeah, and you can see, you know, Jack Kevorkian, I remember growing up hearing that name, you always thought of like this, this kind of, um, I don't know, like evil... You know, like a sinister kind of murderer. Yeah. Man. yeah, 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 like a mad scientist kind of guy. He was like killing his own patients without their consent, and right. it's totally not the case. And and it's it's Jack Vorkin was someone who was, um, at least in his mind, being merciful to these people, and really deeply cared for them, um, and went went above and beyond to get their consent to do so. Um, and I, I'm not defending him on, on an ethical level but what i am saying is um one of the quotes in the beginning of the 60 minutes interview he says he says um 
I'm not quoting it verbatim, but basically a paraphrase. He's like, this, this, what I am doing is, is the next step of an, of a, of a, um, reasonable society. Yeah. Or um, enlightened society. I think the enlightened society. Too. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. A post, yeah. a post enlightenment society. This is, this is the thing to right. do. Um, yeah. that was a very interesting quote because it's, um, yeah, a very double-edged sword for sure. Right, 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 right. Well, and his big thing was autonomy. Like Mm -hmm. if we're a free society, if we actually have liberty, then we should have the autonomy to end our life Mm -hmm. if we want to, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as Bible-believing Christians, you and I, you know, obviously have some um, disagreements with his worldview, but one of the things that we can't really say about Jack Kevorkian is he was not a, he was not a madman. He knew what he was mm-hmm. doing and he was mm-hmm. a very, um, he had a lot of conviction in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It was like a moral crusade for him almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he actually wanted to get arrested because he wanted to be kind of a martyr for this cause of physician assisted suicide. Mm. Um, <laughs> So what's interesting is he assisted 130 patients in any of their lives and the Detroit Free Press did a report on him. And here's what they reported. 60% of the patients who died with Kevorkian's help were not terminally ill. Hmm. And at least 13 had not complained of pain. The report further asserted that Kevorkian's counseling was too brief, with at least 19 patients dying less than 24 hours after first meeting Kevorkian. <coughs> In at least um, 19 cases, there was no psychiatric exam. Um, and five of those cases involved people with histories of depression. So, like, I mean, the big question is asked, just because somebody in a moment says, man, I want to die. Mm. Should we say to them, all right, well, you have that right. Go ahead. Because, I mean, our emotions as human beings are pretty fickle. I mean, I've had some low points in my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've ever seriously plotted suicide, but there have been times when I've thought, man, it's better for me not to even be alive anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that there wasn't somebody standing near me and saying, well, I can help make that happen. Right. So <clears throat> that was kind of the controversy is were these people really terminally ill? Kevorkian would have said, oh, they're terminally ill. Uh, the Detroit Free Press said, no, they weren't. They weren't truly terminally ill. They could have died from that disease, but there's no way to know that they would die from that disease. Um, <clears throat> Kevorkian allegedly said that he helped them commit suicide, so he wasn't the one that actually did it. He used a euthanasia device. Although, in the video that I showed you, Gabe, it certainly seemed like he was the one pushing the needle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, his disease so, progressed to the point where he couldn't even inject himself, so he was doing the right. injections for him. Yeah, Yeah. so we're, we'll talk about the difference between a physician-assisted suicide and true euthanasia. Um, the video that I sent you, Gabe, seemed like he was actually performing euthanasia, so he was the one. Dr. Gavorkian was the one administering the drug, but um, he invented uh, two euthanasia devices where the individual would be the one that pushed the button. <coughs> um, 
So one was called the Thanatron, which uh, Thanatos is Greek for death, and that was just means death machine. The other was called the Mercitron, the Mercy Machine, and that was a very rudimentary machine that had a gas mask canister fed by carbon monoxide. So, I mean, that's pretty dark mm-hmm. that he essentially equipped these people with this stuff and said, all right, here's the button, and um, let him push the button. And so it's really interesting now to look back on his legacy because, like, there's a lot of people like Gabe and I who look at some of the stuff he did and we go, man, that that just seems that seems like a really slippery slope and like that opened the door for a lot of a lot of just this this culture of death that we see all around us especially abortion on demand and things like that mm-hmm. um, but in more progressive circles he's considered almost a hero mm-hmm. and a social activist do you think that's a fair characterization of how he's remembered today yeah, uh, one of the things I did was I went through and scrolled through the comments of that um, video, the YouTube video at the 60 Minutes interview with him, and oh, it was gosh. amazing how many of the comments, like the top most highly rated comment was praising Jack Kevorkian as being um, a very merciful man who was a he- actually a hero of the medical community, as one, one of the comments said. Um, wow. I thought it was very interesting how, how many people praised him for what he was doing. Yeah. And I think that that's that kind of comes comes with the culture shifting towards more of a secular culture. Is that we're going to begin to look at and and as we progress more and, and, and <coughs> integrate more into a universal healthcare system where the collective are picking up the tab of any medical expenses for the for the populace, we're going to see more of a push towards uh, euthanasia. Um, and Canada is seeing it, and other places in Europe are seeing it. It's your drain on the collective. So um, it's necessary now that we, we uh, terminate your life. God, that's dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it, but <clears throat> assisted suicide in euthanasia. In the U.S., um, the laws are... Pretty fuzzy, to be honest. I was trying really hard to to get clear definitions of like the law, but um, basically, physician-assisted suicide, or another term for it, is medical aid in dying. So it's interesting. I was cleaned up to seem less mm-hmm. daunting. Right now, it is legal in California, Colorado the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, you you are able to do that in those states. If you live in those states, you have the right, according to your state's law, to have a physician assist you in committing suicide. Most of the time, that is... Uh, pending like a psychiatric evaluation and a medical um, evaluation to say you are truly terminally ill and you qualify for physician-assisted suicide. Um, But there you go. Mm. It's legal in those states. Uh, Voluntary euthanasia is legal in Belgium, Canada, Colombia, Luxembourg, Netherlands, New Zealand, uh, Portugal. I guess it's pending. Spain, which really surprised me because Spain has still a pretty big Catholic presence. 
So that really surprised me. You don't really see this in a lot of countries where there's a big Catholic presence. So that, that really surprised me. And uh, all six states of Australia. It's legal. So. Hmm. So what do all those, so, what do all those countries have in common? <laughs> is. <laughs> Oof. They're I all, mean, they're some all... of them are quite progressive, right? Yeah. Secular. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. I would say there's there's a growing culture of secularism. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Western culture, in post enlightenment. <clears throat> yeah. Um, probably a degree of of universal healthcare. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, and we'll get into this as we get into kind of the biblical ethic. As Christians, we have a understanding of life and death that is distinctly different from those who do not have a belief in God, a belief that God created us, and a belief that we have an eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in nations that are very far removed from that, like generations removed from that, <clears throat> it, it's more common to see people embrace this idea that, you know, man, we're, we're, we're just like any other living thing. Mm-hmm. So you euthanize a horse and that's humane. So why not let someone who's in pain euthanize themselves or allow someone else to euthanize them? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think people... And it all really look- comes down... Uh, yeah, I was going to say people with the biblical worldview look at it like a, a, a an ethical matter, whereas people with the secular worldview would look at it as an economic matter. Uh, sure, a trans a very transactional kind of kind of um, relationship to this issue, whereas we look at it as like, you know, this is this is human life. It's special. We have to pause and we have to really really weigh this out and wrestle with right. this topic. Right. Yeah. And and even. Um I would say kind of the postmodern worldview says like a person's personal liberty to do whatever it is they want. That's like one of the highest virtues. And so anything that keeps them from doing what it is they feel like is going to make them happy, we should get out of the way and let them do that. I think that's the big debate with like the the trans issue right now, Mm -hmm. right? If a Mm -hmm. guy wants to identify as a woman and shower in a lady's locker room, then we should all go along with that and get out of the way as long as that makes him happy. Um, never mind the ethical issues at stake there. And it's kind of the same with this issue of if somebody doesn't feel like living anymore, never mind the ethical issues at stake, we should by all means assist them in the end of their life. So, well, let's talk some terms because we've been throwing around euthanasia and assisted suicide and they're not actually the same thing. Um, so euthanasia is when a doctor is allowed by law to end a patient's life by painless means, as long as the person and their family agree. And assisted suicide is a doctor assisted individual in taking their own life. So it kind of seems like what we saw on the video with Dr. Kevorkian, that was more euthanasia than assisted suicide. Although most of his, he would say, were assisted suicide that he performed. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. 
Hmm. All right. So then within euthanasia, there's kind of three different types of euthanasia. There's voluntary euthanasia. So when someone is able to consent, they're, you know, if I get to this certain point, then go ahead and end it for me. <clears throat> there's non-voluntary euthanasia. When euthanasia is conducted on a person who is unable to consent due to their current health condition. So that would be a decision made by another appropriate person on behalf of an individual. So like a family would make that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, well, he wouldn't want to live like this. So we need to go ahead and in that person's life. And man, that's, that's a tricky, tricky thing. Because now we're getting into things like pulling people off life support and keeping them alive and stuff like that. So that's a that's a tricky one. And then there's involuntary euthanasia, <laughs> which is called murder because it's against the person's will. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody... Uh, who does not have any informed consent because they don't want to die because they weren't asked. They're just killed. Mm-hmm. And someone says, I'm doing them a favor by killing them. No, that's called murder, and that's not what we're talking about in in that case. One could make the case that even the topic of euthanasia is murder, but involuntary euthanasia kind of stands alone. It's a category by itself. It is, yeah, and it is in a category by itself, but it's it's one step away from voluntary euthanasia and i think i think Hmm. once a society gets completely okay with and accepting of voluntary euthanasia involuntary euthanasia especially in an environment where there's a high high degree of collectivist thinking involuntary euthanasia is just the next step um it's 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 a i would say it's a inevitable next step for that society to take is involuntary euthanasia, where everyone says that person is too much of a drain, or those groups of people are too much of a drain on our collective well-being. Uh, <laughs> why am I paying to keep that person alive? Or they're clearly a, a, a menace or whatever. Um, right. that's, that's, I would say, an inevitable next step. Well, back to the Terry Schiavo case, this is what people who were you know, against taking out her feeding tube, we're saying that people were doing, you're committing mm-hmm. involuntary euthanasia against Terry Schiavo mm-hmm. simply because she's in a vegetative state and she cannot give consent on whether or not she would want to die. <clears throat> and so the big argument was if someone's handicapped and if someone is, you know, only alive because there's a feeding tube or only alive because they have caretakers around, do we just say that's too much of a drain? Go ahead and just, let them die because we're just not going to take care of them. And so that's when, again, the image of God and the sanctity of life kind of come into the picture. You've got to make that decision based on what you believe about the dignity of humanity, not just the economics of the situation. Hmm. Agreed. So <clears throat> this is where it kind of gets tricky and we'll kind of try to make a distinction. There's active euthanasia and there's passive euthanasia. So active euthanasia is like what Dr. Kevorkian did. So using a lethal substance or force to end a person's life. 
either the individual themselves is doing it in the case of physician-assisted suicide or someone else is doing it. Um, obviously, this is far more controversial. Um, but in the places where it's legal, four conditions have to be met. Number one, the patient must be suffering from unbearable physical pain. Number two, death must be inevitable and drawing near. Number three, the patient must give consent. Um, unlike passive euthanasia, living wills and family consent does not suffice. And then number four, the physician must have ineffectively exhausted all other means and measures of pain relief. So that's according to most places where active euthanasia is legal, all four of those boxes must be checked hmm. in that sense. And then there's passive euthanasia, and that's when life-sustaining treatments are withheld. And so these definitions aren't really precise. This is where it kind of gets into the muddy waters of what is hospice care, what is palliative care, all that stuff. Um, if a doctor prescribes increasing doses of strong pain management, like opioids, eventually this may be toxic for an individual. Some may argue that this is passive euthanasia. Others say this isn't euthanasia because there's no intention to try to end that person's life. They're just making that person comfortable. So for most places where passive euthanasia is legal, three conditions must be met. Number one, the patient must be suffering from incurable diseases and in the final stages of the disease that they're not going to make a recovery from. Number two, the patient must give express consent to stopping treatment. And this consent must be obtained and preserved prior to death. If the patient is not able to give clear consent, their consent may be predetermined or may be determined from a pre-written document, like a living will, a testament of the family. And the patient may be passively euthanized by stopping medical treatment, chemotherapy, dialysis, artificial respiration, blood transfusion, IV drip, et cetera. Hmm. And that's where it gets tricky. Because I don't know if some people would view that as euthanasia. That's just letting that person die. Yeah. Man. What What do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's tough. Because um, I mean, you know, Jenny, she should be she should be in on this podcast. You know, your wife. Is, she lost her voice. I was going to uh, but she lost her voice. She, she's a, a hospice <laughs> as a hospice nurse. You know, it's like um, I remember. You know, when my dad was passing away in a, in a hospice center, um, they they gave us basically hooked him up to a patch. That fed him morphine, and this is the case with a lot of people that are in their their last days, and are suffering from a lot of pain and discomfort. It's like they they have a and you give the family a button, like a remote control, basically, and they say anytime they are conscious and they are expressing a high amount of pain, hit that button, mm. and it injects them with more morphine, and it basically sedates them. But at the same time, it's like your that morphine is shutting down their vital organs and, and slowing their heart rate, and eventually it will kill them. And it's like it's not it's not the it's not the morphine that's killing them. It is, but it's indirectly killing them. It's like it's the disease that's ultimately going to take their life. Right. But then the morphine is is supposed to sedate them and help ease their pain. But it's like man, it's such a such a yeah. intense dilemma that one has to go through. Um. Yeah, and the tricky part is the alternative for that is don't give them anything for their pain and mm -hmm. watch them writhe 
and cry out in agony as they take their last dying breath. Yeah, yeah. And unless you, 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 you know, look so in the <laughs> eyes of someone, yeah, until you, you look in the eyes of someone who's in a excruciating pain and is praying for death, um, you know, you, you can't you can't say for sure what you would do in that situation. It's right. like, and and here's the thing: is like there's there's a big difference between a family sitting around, um, uh, kind of making those decisions case by case with their loved one right there as well. And in the, in, in right. the moment making those decisions, there's a big, there's a big difference between that situation and in a, in a hotel room or not a hotel room, a hospice room. Sorry. Big difference between that and a, um, a government entity telling you to do that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I think that most, most times when it is kind of that, um, you know, passive euthanasia, which is withholding certain treatments or giving mm-hmm. strong pain management. I, I think for the most part, that is families mm-hmm. wanting to do what is most merciful and compassionate right. to ease the the suffering and pain of their loved one. They're not trying to kill their loved one. They know their loved one's dying. It's just mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to help them kind of go in peace, I right. think. Yeah. And I think that's completely different than mm-hmm. what the people that came to Dr. Kevorkian were seeking out mm-hmm. in the sense of, I don't want to live anymore and I want you to help me mm-hmm. uh, in my own life. And so I think that's, that's like the, the rub, right? Like, mm-hmm. do we have the right as human beings before God ethically to say to another person, okay, I'll help you end your life. Or do we have the right to say my life's going to be full of suffering. And so i don't want to live anymore. So I get to end my own life and that's a good thing to do. And that's perfectly morally justifiable. Yeah. I, I would say that that is, that is definitely not a black and white issue because I mean, you could say like soldiers in combat, you know, and it's like, I'm sure there have been instances where a fellow soldier is pleading and crying out for someone to put him in out of his misery, you know, and it's like, that would probably be yep. at times a humane thing to do. But it's like, there's such a broad spectrum of, of a case by case scenarios. And, and I think once a society or government puts a stamp of legality on this issue and says that here's, here's this is this is on the table as an option to anyone who who wants to terminate their life um you get in some really really murky and in some really slippery waters at that point sure uh, for sure yeah so the reasons for why someone would seek out euthanasia according to a canadian study of 112 patients who were seeking and receiving medical assistance and dying uh, the main reasons people requested it is they were terminally ill, and so it was a loss of control and independence. Hmm. Um, Gabe, would you mind sharing? I know it's, this is a sensitive and a mm-hmm. very close, uh, you know, we're hitting close to home, but, I mean, your your father passed away of ALS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what was that like kind of watching him battle that illness and um, kind of those yeah. last few seasons of his life? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't wish that disease on anybody. Uh, it's awful. It is living hell. Um, 
Yeah, you just lose mm-hmm. all independence and, and use of all your muscles. And it works from the outside of your body, extremities, in, inward into your body. It eventually ends with the loss of your ability to even control your own diaphragm. And with that comes the inability to exchange carbon dioxide with oxygen, and you slowly suffocate and die. If, if you don't um, you know, choke and die on, on food that you're trying to eat. Um, and usually with, with um, ALS patients uh, in, their, in their late stages, they develop a, a pneumonia, um, usually from like aspirating uh, water or food or their own saliva. Uh, and and they're, they're not able to cough because uh, they don't have the strength in their diaphragm and their, their abdomen to cough. Um, so they usually get really bad double pneumonia, and that helps progress the, the, um, the feeling of, of uh, suffocating. And it, it actually speeds up the process of suffocating. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a horrible, horrible disease. And, um, wow. Yeah, one that, one that I do not wish on anyone. Um, yeah, that's, you know, there's, there's, that's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a modern, I say modern disease. We don't, there's not a lot of cases of it being like, you know, that disease being present in antiquities. And mainly because if you were unable to swallow, I mean, you'd be dead in three or four days, right? And so right, it's only right, because right, right. of modern, modern like feeding tubes and stuff that we can insert food and water into people directly into people's stomachs, keep them alive. Um, that would not have been a thing hundred years ago. So, you know, we, we wouldn't have had time to diagnose someone with ALS. So this question is only cropping up because we're able to keep people alive thanks to, to you know, technology and medical breakthroughs. Um, yeah. But it's a question that we do have to come face to face with. But yeah, ALS is an absolute loss of control and independence for sure. How long did your dad have his diagnosis before he passed? Like from the time he first got his diagnosis until he passed? I, I think about 18 months. Um, that's fast for ALS. Uh, there's a couple different forms yeah. of ALS. Some start with like your, um, your, your hands and your feet and work their way inward. Others start with your speech and your tongue and quickly affect your ability to talk and, and swallow. And that was his, his was a faster form. Um, mm. so it actually, you know, right away he lost his ability to talk and, and swallow food and water. So right away we had to do, we mm. had to do a feeding tube, um, and then I took all his meals and water through a feeding tube and a syringe. And then um, they actually had to go in and get his saliva glands actually burnt off inside his mouth. They actually had to, to singe them because he was producing saliva, but he wasn't able to swallow the saliva. See, typically throughout the day, we produce a lot of saliva and we swallow it just kind of subconsciously. Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to do that. So you, you would, you know, um, he would have to carry a towel around with him and some, you know, his caretaker would have to carry a towel around with him and just wipe up constant just just constant um drooling and you know just like he would lean over or something and drool would just kind of drip from his his mouth it's really dehumanizing disease and um you'd always have to wipe that up and um and then once he got the saliva glands singed and burnt off that helped a little bit um yeah so it's (laughs) listen guys like i have a firsthand uh account with with walking through someone and I was there every single day with this disease and, and help helping be his caretaker. And, um, I, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just approaching this topic as if, if I'm just like, Oh, I've never had to deal with anyone who, who, you know, would would probably prefer death, you know, if they were given the option, I I've been there and the, you know, and, and experienced this and, um, 
I'm coming at it with a high degree of empathy for people who are having to walk through terminal illnesses. And I will tell you, that's a really tough decision. That's a really tough decision. Sure. There's a big decision between, there are big differences between someone who's walking through a disease like ALS and, and someone who's just struggling with, with deep depression and, and feels at the time that they'd yeah. rather be dead. Um, that's where we got to be sure. really careful. So you can understand why someone would seek out euthanasia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would yeah. understand. Yeah. Yeah. I don't hold it against them. So all the stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, <clears throat> you know, if you're facing a diagnosis like what your, your dad passed from, I mean, loss of control and dependence, loss of ability to enjoy the things that you used to enjoy, even being able to communicate and have a quality mm-hmm. of life. Um, yeah. I mean, Josh, if I got diagnosed with what my dad had tomorrow, yeah, um, like, medically assisted suicide or euthanasia would absolutely cross through my mind immediately. Sure. Um, sure. Just to give you a frame of reference, like I'd say, okay, let me live out a couple more months with this. And, and then once things like uh, that would absolutely be on the table for me. Now, is that something my family would be okay with? And that would that be me being selfish in the moment and, um, and, and, and stealing time away from my family just because I don't want to suffer? Possibly. Um, and is that right. the route I would go? I, I, don't, I don't know, but, um, mm-hmm. I can say with a high degree of empathy and, and, uh, experience that that is a very, very tough decision. Um, and, and sure. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the ethical issues surrounding, I mean, we can understand why somebody would want to seek that out. We can understand why someone would even want to explore administering that to a family member who's suffering, but the ethical issues would be, um, you know, the, the doctor's role in that because doctors take a oath Mm -hmm. that they will not do any harm. They're not going to, you know, do anything that would cause bodily harm to a patient. And by definition, what euthanasia is, is you are ending the life of a patient, which directly goes against what a doctor went into medicine to do in the first place. Hmm. Um, We're going to get into kind of the spiritual uh, objections to it here in a minute, but obviously that plays a big role in it. But one that we've kind of hinted at is patient competence. Like euthanasia is only voluntary if that patient is mentally competent and they actually understand what's going on. And determining if that patient actually understands and knows (laughs) what's about to happen and if they're in, in a mental state to actually make that decision is really, really, really tough. Does that make sense? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so if somebody's in a depressive state and, man, they've had a really, really, really crazy battle with mental illness for a long time and they're like, I want to die, okay, do they really? Or is it just like today they do, but tomorrow they might not, right? Mm-hmm. And determining that, I mean, that's that's really, really tough because, I mean, this is a permanent decision that person's making, right? Um. Another ethical issue is guilt because patients may feel like they're a burden on resources and are psychologically pressured into consenting. 
Um, again, Gabe, this is kind of what we're talking about with like uh, the secularization and the kind of the postmodern kind of collective that, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're only keeping people alive who can contribute to the collective. And so an individual might feel like they're a burden and they're pressured into, well, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. And, and really that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, slippery slope. We kind of mentioned this. So there's the risk that this will start for people who are terminally ill. And then we crack that door open and then that'll begin to include other individuals. Right. So this person has been <clears throat> depressed and feels like they want to die every day for the past 10 years. Man, is it humane and ethical for us to make them stay alive when they hate living? Hmm. And there's a lot of people concerned that you're opening the door for that kind of slippery slope to happen. Um, possible recovery. It sometimes happens. And then palliative care. So like you were mentioning, like your dad on a morphine patch, like mm-hmm. that kind of makes euthanasia unnecessary because someone is able to die, you know, basically pain-free if there's mm-hmm. good palliative care available. Um, and then another moral objection is there's no way you can regulate euthanasia. I mean, there's just no way. So, hmm. once you go through the three arguments in favor of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, yeah. So the three would be autonomy, and that is everyone has a right to die when and how they choose. And in fact, human dignity includes this. Uh, the second argument in favor of euthanasia or phys- physician-assisted suicide would be minimizing pain and suffering, that it's actually quite moral, humane, and merciful to take the suffering, take away the suffering of a terminally ill individual. And we actually have the moral obligation to do this. And the third argument for this would be that there's no morally relevant difference between taking steps to hasten death and allowing the dying process to occur. Since withholding treatment is permissible, why wouldn't euthanasia also be since the end result or death is the same in either situation. Hmm. It's just kind of like an ends justifies the means argument, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is kind of the, the topic right now that, um, yeah, it, this is where people are, are kind of split and divided. I think there's one group that would say, it is 100% moral and ethical to give someone the human dignity to die with dignity in the way they choose. And others would say, no, we don't have that right. Hmm. And I think it all comes down to what do you believe about God mm-hmm. and what do you believe about human beings? Yeah. And even like, I, man, I really hope, um, gosh, I'm going to be so like uh, sensitive how I approach this. Um, I've lost friends to suicide I've done funerals for individuals who've committed suicide and suicide is one of the darkest and most awful terrible things 
and doing a funeral for a 14-year-old girl who committed suicide is mm. probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I don't know exactly how somebody gets to that place mentally where they believe that's the best option out of where they are. But if you're listening to this right now and you're in that place where you're thinking, this is an option, this is a viable way out of the pain that you feel, um, if, if there is a God in heaven, and there is, he has a plan for your life and he knows you and he is the one that's writing your story and he's the one that gave you your life and so he's the one that's responsible for that day that your life ends. And so to take our own life is basically usurping the role of God. Would you say anything to that and add to that, Gabe, in any way? Yeah, I think suicide is just a, a symptom of... <clears throat> complete loss of hope in one's life. You know, let's say yeah. we, we can live 40 days without food, three days without water, two minutes without oxygen, but two seconds without hope. And mm. it's so true because hope is what makes us wake up another day and continue on with our life, even though at times it can be horrible. But yeah, I think that's one of the key tenets of the gospel is hope. And one of the things that should underpin any conversation that we as Christians have about this particular topic is we should be people of hope. Um, <laughs> hope in the kingdom, hope in the resurrection, hope in his return. And I think as we continue to pipe out more secular teaching and um, bolster this this secular culture and mindset in Western civilization, we're going to continue to create more and more hopelessness and purposelessness in populations. And people will not only seek to destroy their own lives, but they'll seek to destroy the lives of those around them as they're doing so. Um, and we're seeing the byproduct of that, you know, with mass shootings and you know, this this very topic that we're, the only reason we're having to do a podcast topic on this is because this is becoming a very, very um, hot button issue right now. But it's a product, I would say, is of, of a loss of collective hope in a society. Hmm. Yeah. Well, anytime in the Bible you see characters committing suicide, and there are six that are mentioned, Abimelech in Judges 9, Saul in 1 Samuel 31, Saul's armor bearer, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel. So if you're looking for a baby name, there you go, Ahithophel. Hmm. Zimri in 1 Kings and then Judas. Um, all of these men are noted for their wickedness. Hmm. Um, the exception is Saul's armor bearer because nothing's said about his character. But um, yeah, I mean, it's the Bible does not view suicide as a morally justifiable thing in any context, it's equal to murder. Somebody might say, well, Samson, Samson is, you know, he committed suicide because he pushed the columns down in the Temple of Dagon, the Philistines. Well, <clears throat> Samson's goal was to kill Philistines, not really himself. So I don't know if that really counts in that, right? So uh, the Bible views suicide as equal to murder, and that's what it is. It's self-murder. 
and God is the only one who decides when and how a person should die. Psalm 31.15 says, My times are in your hands. And so God is the giver of life. He gives, he takes away. And so listen, like I'm not saying that that is easy for somebody who is dying of a terminal disease like Gabe, your, your dad. But your dad finished his race well. Mm-hmm. He ran the race with endurance that was set before him. And the last few miles of his race, he was suffering and he was hurting. But man, he finished his race well, you know. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we don't have that right to end our own life is because God is the one who has given us life and he has the authority to take that life and we're created in his image and likeness. And so we have dignity and value to our lives. And at some point, if we just decide our lives are not worth living, that fundamentally rejects the dignity that God has given us. Hmm. Um, Okay, read uh, Genesis 2-7 for us, and we'll talk about this, this thing called life that God's given us. Yeah, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's it's an interesting idea that God breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life. What would that say about the difference between man and every other living creature that God himself breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. Mm. Yeah. Is, is, did God breathe into animals? Um, I know he breathed into God breathed a breath or spirit. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if the original language is there that's behind this in the Hebrew, if it's like different, if it's, um, hmm. If it's if it if it categorizes it differently, like what what he uses to animate animals versus humanity, but that's at the, at the crux of it. That's that's the difference. Is like in a biblical worldview, we look at we look at humanity as different than the animal kingdom, and in a secular worldview, uh, they're all homogenous. That we're just highly evol- evolved forms of animals. No, and I. I think it starts a conversation starts with that and asking where are you coming from with this issue because if you're if you're coming from a secular worldview then yeah of course you're gonna you're gonna side one way or the other and I think if you're coming from a biblical worldview you have to side on the on the side of life and hope and and waiting for healing um, and like you said allowing allowing God to decide when it is time to take away, <laughs> like in Job 121. Yeah. yeah, and that's hard, because, I mean, you know, by no means does that diminish the suffering that people go through. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the very, <laughs> the fact that we're alive right now is the is like this precious and sacred gift from God. Mm-hmm. And, like, every moment matters, and every breath that we breathe is a gift. And... The Bible is very clear that we're going to have suffering and pain and hardship. Um, but to end this life willingly, even in the midst of suffering, pain, and hardship, that's to blaspheme the giver of life. 
Um, I'll put this mm-hmm. in the show notes, Ecclesiastes 7.14, in the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So like um, suffering is never a morally, a morally justifiable reason to end life. I mean, you can't find that anywhere in Scripture. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible actually would say that suffering makes known to us the purposes of God. And it's awful and painful, but biblically speaking, it's not given as a reason for us to be able to end our lives. Hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very complex issue, but yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I'm saying this not going through a terminal illness. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and again, I don't know how I would feel if tomorrow morning I woke up and I got a diagnosis like the one your dad did. Mm-hmm. But I hope that in those moments, the people I've surrounded myself with in this life will remind me of you know, the truth of God, that God is the one who's sovereign over when and how our death occurs. Um. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for man once to die, and after that's the judgment. Ecclesiastes 8.8 8 says no man has power over the wind to contain it. No one has the power over the day of his death. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of seems just in, in the Word of God, it's pretty clear death is a natural occurrence, but God is the one who's control of when and how that works. And that's not... That's not for us to say for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So suicide in any of its forms, whether it's somebody saying, I'm going to end it all because I don't feel like living, whether it's physician-assisted suicide, whether it's euthanasia, whatever it is, is a human being's attempt to try to usurp that authority from God. Mm. And, um, yeah, and, and and so, yeah, that's a... Godly man, this is a <laughs> this is a heavy topic. It is, yeah. Good Lord. When I think too, we have to look at it from a from a, a a political standpoint, and you know, a lot of people don't realize that during the Third Reich in Germany, um, even before the outbreak of World War II, uh, there was a program, a euthanasia program, uh, called the Action T four T four program. Um, during which it started just with kids and, and infants, but basically um, it targeted uh, kids with disabilities or you know uh, mental disorders or whatever, and then it got expanded to adults. Um, and if you if you were suffering things like schizophrenia, epilepsy, dementia, encephalitis, uh, chronic psychiatric or neurological oh, disorders, wow. if you were not uh, of German or related blood. Uh, if you were criminally insane, uh, if you were if you were in prison or institutionalized for more than five years, you were um, against your will uh, euthanized. And well, wow. I mean, and those people like they 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 thought they were doing the right thing to promote uh, a really good what they thought was a really good society it was a really advanced society that that was that was cleansing the gene pool of people that were undesirable. And so I think when we 
we have to look at it from a precedence standpoint. I'm all about precedence. And, and if we make this across the board illegal in our society and we're heading towards more of a uh, collectivist or universalist medical system, uh, yeah, we're, who, who gets to define uh, criminally insane? Who gets to define yeah, undesirable, yeah. mentally ill, you know, and those sorts of things? And I, right, I right, 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 am right, right. terrified to think of the possibilities that that would create if someone, um, you know, were, were to come and hate speech, you know, those kinds of things. Like, um, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, a drain on the system, too. Like, who gets to define right. what's a drain on the system? Right, You know, right. is someone a drain on the system because it's a Terry Schiavo situation or someone's a drain on the system because, man, they're just in and out of psychiatric hospitals over and over mm-hmm. again, and we just can't foot that bill anymore, and there's no reason for that person to be alive anymore. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, a very, very sobering thing to think. If we start removing the sanctity of human life away from our understanding, that cracks the door open to where we begin to justify genocide essentially Mm -hmm. and and say that that's morally excusable or or justifiable and that's yeah Yeah. most most everybody knows about the six million jews who were systematically murdered during the holocaust but they actually many people don't know about the quarter of a million people that were exterminated through this uh, euthanasia program in, in Germany during the Third Reich. I mean, that's 250,000 people in, in like a decade that were euthanized wow. against their will. Like, how did... And, and here's the thing. It wasn't like just like overnight they got there. How, how did they get there? And it was like a, hmm. a slow buildup to this, okay, yeah, I think that's probably a good idea now that we go ahead and round these people up with schizophrenia or epilepsy or dementia or whatever. And, and yeah, let's... Let's go ahead and euthanize them, and um, that's a good idea. Like, how how does a well, society get there in yeah. a post enlightenment world? Right? We we love right. to praise ourselves well, as being post enlightenment, but man, we can do some really screwed up stuff post enlightenment. I think it starts by saying that we as human beings have the right to determine which lives are worth mm-hmm. living and which lives are not worth living. Mm. And so, when you crack the door open to say this person has a life that's worth living and they should be allowed to continue to live. And this person, their life isn't really going to amount to much and they don't have any life that's worth living at all. So we could either allow them to end their life if they want, or we can go ahead and tell them that they've got to, and we're going to do it for them. Um, Another thing that's crazy is as the allied forces were closing in on Berlin and closing in on Nazi parties towards the end of the war in 1945, the amount of German officers that committed suicide hmm. was astounding. I mean, obviously Hitler and his mistress. Um, but, I mean, if you, if you read some of the accounts of just, I mean, awful. Joseph Grobel's the uh, Minister of Propaganda, he had a beautiful family. He had his wife and four or five children. And... Um, fed every one of his children cyanide pills. Mm. And it was just like this like culture of death that was just, it was so cheap. And it was just like that kind of life is not worth living going into 
um, you know, captivity as a war criminal and whatever. So I'm going to determine that life is not worth living for my children. So I'm going to go ahead and end my children's life now. Hmm. I mean, that's a dark place to get as a culture and as a dark place to get, I think in somebody's mind to start playing those games. And so that's why I think this is such a important thing for us to, to get right as Christians as we move into more post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, man, heavy stuff, dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like next episode needs to be like something super lighthearted and chipper and easy. Yeah. Well, that topic's not like, going away anytime soon. And, uh, yeah, I hope, I no. hope we can make the right choices. How, how is your baseball game going? I see your eyes darting over there towards your phone. Well, so Austin Riley, who's an uh, infielder for the Braves, mm. he had a great in bat, at bat. He actually he got a single, so I'm really proud of him. He's my guy, Austin Riley. What's your most so, valuable baseball card? Do you have that? Would be cards? a Dave Dave Justice rookie card. Mm. Old in my Dave, the old Dave Justice. You have no idea who Dave Justice is. No there. idea who Jay Justice. No, <laughs> couldn't pick him out of a crowd. Yeah, David Justice played for the Braves, and he was on the World Series team. Did he have a mullet? He did not. No, mm. he was a he was a short haired. I think he's a bald guy. Shaved it, shaved it, cut, cut it short. So, yeah. So I've got that in my office at uh, at work. So I don't really have a ton of sports memorabilia. What I do collect, though, are chick tracks. Do you know chick tracks? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I collect those, and uh, my friends Kevin and Shelly Hotsteller always bring me chick tracks uh, when they find them out on the road. So shout out to those guys. Thanks for bringing me chick tracks. Keep them coming. So I have a collection of probably <laughs> nine or ten in my office. I love it. So, <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, it's great. I keep those along with all of the crazy letters that people have written me, like the conspiracy theorist letters and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. newspaper clippings cut out and pasted to you know youtube videos people think you should watch yeah with all of of your free time i (laughs) i think other pastors would probably be so disturbed they would throw those letters away and like pray over their office when they get in the mail i think they're really Mm. funny and i keep them in a file folder so Mm. um you know the ones that talk about fluoride in the water and uh Mm. you know all that stuff. So that's good. My favorite. Are the, Every uh, pastor uh, should have a folder of that. So <laughs> the Seventh Day Adventist uh, mantra that there's um, laws laws that are going to be in, uh, enacted in the United States that everyone has to keep a Sunday Sabbath. I'm like really, you oh. really, you really believe that? Like that's oh yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, I did not know laws. that. Yeah, we should do an episode on it sometime. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but the marathon that you and I are running in uh, mm. October is put on by the Adventist Church. So yeah. Did you yeah, know that? I did I did catch that, yeah. That's why it's, I guess it's on a okay. Sunday. That's why you it's a Sunday. Sunday, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a dead giveaway. So. You should just wear all blue and be like yeah. pro, I have a t-shirt, like pro blue laws or something, yeah. Trigger everyone. <laughs> oh, uh, that's funny. Maybe we should do an episode on Seventh-day Adventists. Hey oh, my controversy little. No. No. Well, thanks for listening to the episode, guys. If you have any questions, if you have any concerns, 
Well, man, if you just want to talk through this issue, please reach out to us. If you're local, Gabe and I would love to sit down and get a cup of coffee with you and talk through this. Or you can send us an email, barriersandbiblepockets at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Always love hearing from listeners and viewers. So uh, you guys take care. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.